Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU. Today, Thursday, the 5th of August, we're thrilled to have a very distinguished guest joining us. So let me hand things over to my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, to offer his welcome. Thanks, Darren. It's a great pleasure to welcome Gary Quinlan to the podcast. Darren likes to remind me that I've been around for a long time, so it's nice to be talking to someone who has been around almost as long as me. Not not quite, I, I acknowledge that. You would have to describe Gary's career in Australian foreign policy as stellar. I don't think we have had anyone like him in the Australian Foreign Service this century, that is, someone who has worked at the top of each of the three pillars of Australian foreign policy, the region, the alliance, the rules-based order. Gary joined DFAT in 1973, and until his recent retirement, he held one of Australia's most senior diplomatic appointments as our ambassador in Indonesia from 2018 until April this year. And his first head of mission posting was also in the region as High Commissioner in Singapore in 2001. He was Deputy Chief of Mission in our Washington Embassy from 2005 to 2008, and in several of his Canberra-based jobs, he was the senior Australian official in charge of US relations. In the multilateral area, he had postings to the United Nations in New York and as Deputy Permanent Delegate to UNESCO in Paris. He was head of the Australian Delegation to the Law of the Sea Preparatory Commission, in 1987 and 1988, and of course from 2009 as permanent representative to the UN, he presided over Australia's successful campaign for election to the UN Security Council and our term in office, twice taking his place as president of the council. Now there's a lot more in there, Gary, including periods as acting secretary of DFAT, but I finally want to note another dimension of your professional life. Between 1989 and 1996, you worked essentially in Parliament House as Chief of Staff to the late Peter Cook, a politician of very fond memory to everyone who worked with him. And But Peter was in the portfolios originally of resources, industrial relations, trade, then industry, science and technology. So you've had plenty of opportunity to look at Australia from a domestic as well as an international angle. And then finally, you worked as Prime Minister Rudd's senior advisor on foreign affairs, defence and national security. And as we all know, that was a real kick your shoes off, put your feet up sort of job. Gary was appointed as an officer in the Order of Australia for his service to Australian diplomacy in 2016. So it's really great to have you on the podcast, Gary. Welcome. Thank you. Alan, you left out the most significant accolade that you could have mentioned, that on my first posting, and I've said this to people before, I was given the Irish Country Women's Association Man of the Year Award <laughs> in 1976. <laughs> I've, never quite, I've never quite reached that apex again. <laughs> I, I missed that on the CV, but I'm glad that you've brought it up for the record. Gary, let's begin at the end rather than the beginning. Until a couple of months ago, you headed... Australia's largest overseas mission and one of its most important in Jakarta. Yet, for pandemic-related reasons, you had to do the job for months from downtown Canberra before a final visit back to Jakarta before your retirement. So the first question for me is, how did that work? Did it work? Look, yeah, it did work. And I think the key thing as to why it worked is because Indonesia itself was going through a period of lockdowns. Everybody was more or less required to work from home. This went on for months. There were no face-to-face -face meetings with ministries and agencies and ministers and so on and senior officials unless there was the most unique you know, set of urgent circumstances because the Indonesian officialdom and, and system 
wanted to work that way as well. So that's really, I think, why we were able to do it. And I think we did do it pretty effectively. I worked out of an office in DFAT and sometimes out of the East Hotel in Kingston in the ACT. I did a huge number of Zoom meetings and WebExes, webinars. The Indonesians, by the way, preferred to operate with Zoom rather than WebEx. So we had to go through a bit of adjustment with all of that, but that was fine. No problem. And, you know, look, just as one example, the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership came into force in July, in the middle of the pandemic last year. And in the next three months after that, both governments were really concerned, what could we do to elevate advocacy to get our business communities recognising, well, this is here now, even though we've got COVID, let's see how we can use it, each of us. And on the Australian side, we did in three months, a program called Business Connect with Austrade and DFAT and myself involved, not in every meeting, but we did 67 different Zoom presentations and WebEx presentations with the business community to over 6,000 business people. And we did it and it worked. So, so that was great. I think the other advantage, frankly, was I'd already been in Jakarta for a couple of years and they knew me and I knew them, including at ministerial level. And so I had good engagement whenever it was required, you know, Zoom meetings, discussions, review sessions with the Minister for Health, with Santiago Uno, Minister for Tourism, the new government, to discuss how we were going with all of that, with Lahut Panjatan at various stages, you know, coordinating Minister on Maritime and Investment, but also in charge of the COVID response and people like that. So we were able to engage. And, you know, in DFAT, often I just put on a batik shirt. I had three with me that I fortunately brought with me when I flew out. And I just put those on and put a screen of the embassy behind me. And the Indonesian side were doing the same thing in their own way. And so that kind of worked. It also worked with our own staff because although in the early stages of the pandemic, we withdrew a lot of people because of the uncertainty of how COVID was going to go, this is March last year, and also because the Indonesian government decided for the first three months, four months almost, not to allow Medivax. So there was worries in Canberra about, well, we'd overburden the Indonesian system if people got sick. How were we going to deal with that? Because of that, we had, you know, it was quite a large number of people who came out and then later in the year progressively went back, almost all went back, by the way. We needed to do a lot of town hall engagement meetings with staff. And over the last period till I left in late April, I did 25, 26 of those. And a lot of questions, they'd go on for an hour, hour and a half, two hours in order to keep the show on the road, but also to make sure staff could put whatever their concerns were at any stage. This is people evacuated to Australia, but those left behind in Indonesia as well. There is a limit to all of that, of course. And our staff are mainly back. Those who left went back to Jakarta by early this year. But we're now in a situation where Jakarta and Indonesia generally is now the epicenter for COVID. There's no face-to-face -face meetings. People have to work from home. This is a general situation unless they can document that they're essential services. So the dynamic has changed again. And so we're back into the situation, frankly, in terms of engagement, our people in the embassy, that we had to do for the last 12 months. And this is going to last for quite a while longer, I think. That brings me to a second related question. How will diplomacy change as a profession as a result of the experience, not just of yours, but all foreign services over the past 18 months? I mean, as you've just explained, you've been working by Zoom, there have been lockdowns, people working in posts without their families, new consular challenges. So did it cause you to question any of the profession's existing processes and practices, that is, we don't need to do things in the way we've always done them before. There are simpler, cheaper ways to do it from, I mean, sometimes from offshore. Or do you think that post-pandemic things are just going to more or less snap back to the way they were before? Yeah, Alan, look, I don't think it caused me to question what we'd been doing before. 
you know, although you can always look back and say, oh, yeah, we could have improved a few things in the past in the way in which we were doing things, but not fundamentally question the way we do things. It certainly did. And this is, look, this is all very self-evident. You know, it's pretty obvious to the practitioner, I think, in the field is clearly you had to be very nimble. You really had to be flexible and you had to get yourself into the right space mentally almost to recognise that and the fact that you really had to cop it on the chin when you were working particularly in the field. But even if you'd been evacuated to Australia, I mean, you know, where you had your family and everything else, you might be living in hotel rooms or, you know, other sort of temporary accommodations. So there were some real pressures. So I think there was a sense in which our own management of a foreign ministry needed to, frankly, pay a little bit more attention to all the dimensions of what that means in a global crisis like this, because we've never had a global crisis like this to deal with. So I think that was the first thing. It took DFAT, obviously, a while to get on top of a lot of aspects of that, because the immediate need was to take care of staff overseas, and so many were withdrawn to Australia in the early phases. So I think that was kind of one thing. The need to use digital communication Everybody and people like me had to, to learn, well, this is what you got to do. But the interesting thing was even someone like me, I think, developed a certain confidence in the fact that's fine. You can do it and you're not necessarily losing. You're certainly not losing everything by doing work that way. And you can do it effectively, sometimes less effectively for obvious reasons. You miss the organics of direct, you know, face-to-face communication And there were security issues, you know, because the platforms weren't secure, really. So there are issues there longer term we'd need to look at. But I think people learned you can do it. So therefore, you know, this is the new normal and we'll be able to do a lot more like this when there aren't, you know, top security considerations. I think we're all going to accept the fact there will be less travel. Budgets for foreign ministries are bound to be a lot tighter. And, you know, I think another little lesson was disinformation. Now, pre-COVID, we're all focused on, you know, foreign interference, electoral systems, their integrity, business integrity, cyber intrusions. But the full scope of how disinformation can be so pervasive, so cunning and so quick, but have such an influence, not only on others overseas, other partners and other countries, but our own citizens, And I think that's been a bit of a, you know, forensic wake-up call for people about how much more we need to do in that space. Where did you see that? Can I just ask, where where did you see that, Gary? Well, I mean, just seeing disinformation, for example, circulating in Indonesia about the nature of the infection, and some of it was wild conspiracy theories that we see here as well, that it's not real, it's not really happening, it's a manipulation from external powers or people or forces, all that kind of stuff, the same kind of you know, conspiracy disinformation that you get here, but also disinformation about how little parts of the world were actually helping Indonesia. And then, you know, by implication and sometimes self-branding, you know, the focus on one or two other countries that were actually high visibility of providing support, that kind of thing. Look, the, the other element, I think, is consular. I think it's been quite an experience for an agency like DFAT to face, for the first time ever, a global crisis like this, you know, not an individual crisis like an earthquake, a plane crash, terrible as those things are, but a global crisis like this, where the expectations of Australians are so high, and where, frankly, an agency like DFAT, together with the government, but an agency like DFAT is sort of being marked by people overseas. There was a tremendous response by people in the field. I have to say, I never ceased, and this is genuine, I'm not making this up in any way or overstating it, how diligent and how innovative our heads of mission and embassies and missions were, particularly in Southeast Asia, but so many other places, Central America, the top of Latin America, where we had no real representation and genuine efforts were made to reach what can we do to help people Now, none of this is perfect, and we all know the issues about larger numbers of Australians still wanting to return, or larger numbers, but large numbers were allowed to return. And I think it's given a new 
sense of urgency, I think, to our planning for the future about consular response. And, you know, we've got to overcome any residual distrust, I think, put some effort into that by those Australians who think perhaps, you know, government, and by which I mean an agency like DFAT as well, hasn't been able to respond well enough. There are lessons there, but, you know, I genuinely believe those lessons certainly in DFAT are being picked up and what have you. Gary, can I just jump in on on that last point? Is that a step change in, in the eyes of the Australian public and maybe the Australian government that DFAT is now seen first and foremost as a service delivery organisation? Look, I think it is a step change in the sense that more Australians at one moment, if you like, one, you know, one experience, because it was a global pandemic, global situation, crisis with so many people from so many countries wanting to return and often couldn't return when they had family situations at home, you know, terrible situations. So I think it was the simultaneity, if you like, the fact that this all happened at the one time so globally, so widespread, was a change, a step change. So everybody was focused on Australians overseas, what do you do? Who's the agency to get people back or look after the problems? And in that sense, yes, it's a much more, you know, focused sense of what DFAT is all about. I mean, if you if you think about the past, of course, most people in Australia only ever had an experience with DFAT if they'd had a problem while they were travelling overseas. And since you had a million Australians overseas pre-COVID at any one time, there were quite a lot of those. And it was only when they had a problem, (laughs) you know, and that was fine. And the experiences were sometimes not as perfect as people wanted, but on the whole were pretty good. I used to run a consular division once, and, you know, there's some pretty dedicated people. That was fascinating. Thanks, Gary. Let's turn to Indonesia now. And I want to ask you a version of a question we asked Karinda Sidhu when she was on the podcast after coming back from India. How do Indonesians think about the world and Indonesia's place in it? Is there a big debate on these questions within the country or a strong consensus? How how far does the spectrum of views stretch? Yeah, look, very important question because, because it influences how we need to understand and then calibrate our own, you know, foreign policy in terms not only of Indonesia, but the region. So pretty vital. Look, there's a lot of consensus and it goes right back over the whole period of Indonesia's existence since independence. When, you know, they became an independent state in 1949, out of negotiations, I like to remind people in the UN, by the way, where Australia at President Sukarno's request, represented the Indonesians in the negotiations. What a brilliant way to start the relationship. We were Indonesia's strongest supporter globally for independence, but that's another series of issues. But when they became an independent country, they quite formally defined their foreign policy. And the then Vice President, Mohamed Hatta, wrote a very significant article which was published the early 1950s in Foreign Affairs, you know, the US Journal, which basically said, well, here we are, we're independent, this is our foreign policy, what we're going to do. And it was an easy description. He said, we will be a country that pursues a foreign policy that is, quote, let me get this right, which is a free, i.e. independent, and active. And basically, you know, the, the definition was, and these are my words, not his, but that will give us strategic space to emerge as a new nation without the pressures of, you know, the Cold War and the US-Soviet situation and how people, countries were lining up. And that that is in the Indonesian foreign policy DNA. It certainly became the driver of their very strong support and development of non-alignment to keep that strategic distance, equidistance, I suppose, from the major powers, but particularly those two major ones, the the US and and Russia, Soviet Union, and, you know, a focus on non-interference. Now, that still is in the DNA, although the non-interference, I think, has been, has become more sophisticated in how it's thought about. And it's really about equilibrium. You know, how do you achieve a new balance that gives you as a player and country in the region strategic freedom or maximizes it to the extent that you can and mitigates risk, strategic risk. 
And that's basically where Indonesian stands today. I think most commentators on Indonesian foreign policy would then add to that, or most might not think in those terms, but I think they do, and say, look, you've got three key strands. Number one, from the very beginning, secular nationalism. And that's been an absolute recurrent theme and continues today with variations, but that is a key operating principle. And it's all about sovereignty. And when you think of the archipelago and the need to make sure you can govern the archipelago, you get into thinking about, oh, you know, how do we preserve the unity? Is there a risk from foreign interference? So nationalism remains a very big key and is an important part of the domestic political calculus these days in the post-Sahado period in particular, because you've got to appeal to people. And members of parliament, of course, as in so many countries, are not averse to playing the nationalist card for their own domestic reasons. You've got what's been described, I can't remember who first described it, in foreign policy, a tradition of mercantilism, economic diplomacy, which is very transactional. You know, trade is seen very much in zero-sum game terms, really. They support free trade, but really they're transactionally interested in the benefit that flows. They're not ideological free traders, but it's important to have them line up. And they're a great supporter and proponent of WTO reform, for example. So you've got a whole bundle of people focused on the economic advantages for obvious reasons the country needs to grow. And foreign investment is one element of that. And then you've got, you know, I guess a, a commitment to, you know, the rules-based order, you know, or what you might call internationalism and so on, which brings in the foreign ministry and some of the foreign policy elite thinkers in Indonesia, but have been influential because Indonesia knows fully you've got to have rules, you've got to have norms, which then enables them, of course, to play more widely and all the rest of it. So I think they're the, the kind of key themes and the way they see the world. But one other thing is they do, look, they do know they're the fourth largest country in the world. They do know that pre-COVID, the economic trajectory in terms of weight was pretty good, you know, by 2050. And that probably will still happen. And, you know, they do see Indonesia as important and they want that importance to be recognised. And that's a sort of a, almost a psychological thing in how Indonesians would think about themselves. And it's completely understandable. And, you know, I think it's a good thing because we want a strong Indonesia with, with good strategic weight and which is influential. It's in Indonesia's benefit. And of course, it's to ours, and it very much is to the region. So I think they're the key elements. Gary, you touched on domestic politics. So let's go there for a minute. Alan and I have talked on this podcast a lot about the impact of populism across the West. And part of this story is the divide, albeit a simplified divide, between, shall we say, cosmopolitan globalist elites who live in cities versus religious and social conservatives, often rural, often working class, and in many cases who have been harmed by globalization, or at least sincerely believe they have been harmed, and how they are pushing back against these elites, against the system, and against the order that they represent. Indonesia, as I understand it, is a society and culture that values consensus and stability at its centre. But is there a version of an emerging schism there, you know, a polarised political dynamic within Indonesia? And if so, how is it being managed? Yeah, this is one of the, the fundamental questions, obviously, self-evidently, you know, about the future Indonesia and, uh, you know, direct consequence to us. All of that's pretty obvious. Look, the way I think about it and how, how, how I assess it is that, I mean, Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world and is the third largest democracy and the fourth largest country. So it's pretty big, but it's the largest Muslim country. And so Islam will always have an influence, full stop. It will always have an influence. In its early history, when they formulated their constitution, of course, after independence, 49 and into 50, the question arose, should Islam become a sort of state religion? Effectively, would you constitutionalize, you know, Sharia law? And it was decided no. We are going to establish ourselves on a secular basis 
and particularly developed the, the kind of unifying ideology called Penchicilla, you know, the five operating principles for how you would create unity out of diversity in the country and what the principles were, which include, you know, respect for religion, Islam, and for one God, so monotheistic respect, and then constitutional forms and the ability of people to be heard in a political system and also social justice, those kinds of things. But religion was there from the beginning, but they chose, you know, the pluralistic route. And that's how we think of Indonesia. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, we can have a reasonable degree of confidence how it's moving in those directions. But look, when you look at the world just generally in terms of religion and identity politics, you've got religious piety growing globally across the world, looking back over the last 20, 25, 30 years. You've got the development of evangelical religion, so powerful a force in Africa, Latin America, elsewhere, and including within our own region and parts of it. You've got identity politics, you know, which I mentioned and all the rest. And you've got social conservatism developing broadly, reflecting the greater influence, including political influence, of religion everywhere. It's not a, you know, it's not happening in every country, but it is a global phenomenon. So Indonesia, yeah, reflects some of those kind of dynamics. The last election, presidential election last year, April, was the most polarised election in terms of the div division between, you know, what we might say is the more conservative political Islam and its adherents and those who are uh, more at the centre or a non-Muslim, and there aren't many non-Muslims, but it was, it was more polarised. President Widodo got, you know, he got 10% victory, but when you deconstruct how the figures went in the election in a place like Java and other conservative Islamic parts of the country or Muslim parts of the country, more people voted for Widodo's opponent, Prabowo, this time around than did when Prabowo challenged, you know, five years previously. And on the other side of the coin, more people voted for Widodo in terms of tolerant centrist sort of Islam than had voted previously as well. And you had, you know, really quite a strong element of polarisation. Now, during the election, so I mentioned that as the outcome, but during the election, candidates generally, Widodo, Prabowo, really did find it necessary to showcase their Muslim credentials in different ways, including to show that they were observant and pietistic. And in the case of President Widodo, he also selected a vice presidential running mate, who was not his first preferred choice, by the way, but he chose the head of the Ulema Council, Maruf Amin, who is vice president. And it is said in order, obviously, to satisfy that part of the electorate and try and satisfy that need to be seen to be Islamic. So Indonesia is an electoral democracy, no doubt about that. It'll never be a liberal democracy, as we understand it, Western liberal democracy. Its focus is on you know, communitarian values rather than individual human rights and so on and so forth. But it is an electoral democracy and Islam, in whatever way political Islam is developing, is part of that representative democracy. So it will continue to have an impact and people will continue to seek to appeal to political Islam and to neutralise what they might be worried about. But you can expect compromises as a result. And I think particularly in social policy, which is becoming more conservative and where developments are taking place at the provincial and local levels with local regulations on how people behave and everything else to then build up into the national parliament. So I think that'll be something we need to watch. After the election, of course, President Widodo, you know, clearly has sought to co-opt political Islam. He's appointed a lot of people from Nadudlu Lama, you know, the second largest Muslim organization in the country into significant positions. Many already had them, but, but that's more of a pronounced thing. And he's also put together a coalition of, is it 11 parties? It represents over 75% of the seats in the parliament. And in a sense, that's to 
co-opt the polarized situation and incorporate as many people as he could and isolate what he would consider to be the more extreme elements of political Islam. I think the one risk with this is uh, the administration, Widodo's administration, is pretty tough on people they regard as radical Islamists. And there's been quite a systematic campaign to, you know, remove people from the bureaucracy and universities and state-owned enterprises and so on, who the government thinks are Islamists. And the risk of that is building up, you know, it's obvious, a fairly educated group of people who've been sort of dispossessed in a sense and might be attracted to become slightly more radicalised over time, whatever that might mean. I don't want to overstate that, but it's the sort of risk that, you know, a few people in academics in particular in, in Australian universities, for example, are focused on. But on the whole, I think they're holding the centre and they're holding it well. Okay, I, I think in part you've answered my next question, but I want to dig into the stories of, of two individuals that I think represent some of the themes that you've just been talking about. The first is President Wadodo's successor as the governor of Jakarta, whose nickname is Ahok, and, and he's a, a double minority of being ethnically Chinese and Christian. And he was, of course, famously jailed for blasphemy after referring to a verse of the Quran in a campaign speech. And this was a case that, of course, was widely viewed as a test of the country's religious tolerance. But then after he was released from jail, he was appointed to head the state-owned oil and gas company, Pertamina, which is Indonesia's largest company, I believe. So he's individual one. The second is, of course, Prabowo, who you've already mentioned, who lost two vicious, you might say, election campaigns to, to President Jokowi, is a hugely controversial figure in his own right. And yet, of course, as as you sort of alluded to, after the, this most recent election, he was brought into the government as now the country's defence minister. So I'm wondering what outsiders can learn about Indonesian politics from the stories mm. of these two individuals. Yeah, look, look, I think the basic takeout is how transactional Indonesian politics is. The basic organising principle is not ideology or values as such. The basic one is transactionalism to get into power. And then, you know, you do with power what you do with power, but it's a very transactional system. I think I said, you know, they're not a liberal democracy in the sense that we are and as we understand it. I think the other lesson probably is the degree to which politics in Indonesia is still captured by the elites. Now, Wadodo himself, the president, of course, came from outside the elites and from Solo, and then he became governor of Jakarta. He's the only leader who has not run his own political party. And, you know, his origin was the provinces and he wasn't part of the, despite being governor of Jakarta, he didn't have a history of, with the political and economic and social establishment in Jakarta. So he was an exception who seemed to open up the politics and prospects, you know, in the future for leaders coming through in Indonesia. And I still think that's true. I think decentralization which is very serious in Indonesia. It's the only way you can govern the country to empower the regions with a lot of money. 45% of the budget goes to the provinces to build them up. And the result of that has been to build up a new emerging political leadership among the regions as well. Now, I think that's an important safeguard ultimately for a sort of decentralized democracy, if you like, in Indonesia. But I'm, I'm getting off the the point a bit to your question, I think, but I think it's the transactional stuff. The Ahok experience, and he's not only in Pertamina, you know, and so on, he also joined Megawati's political party, which Widodo is a member of as well, PDIP, and they are the nationalist, secular nationalist party, who've sort of seen political Islam as a bit of an existential threat. So he's joined that, so that may mean he's got some interests down the track and what have you, and let's see how that all kind of works out. But I think that's that's one key lesson that came out of him. I think it's amazing how he adjusted to all of this. But again, it emphasizes the degree to which people are transactional in the political system. A good lesson came out of Ahok longer term, I think, is that the radical Islamist group that put itself together called 212 to bring him down as Governor of Jakarta and everything else, and candidate with Widodo, has not been able to find another cause 
where they've been able to mobilise people. And that's a good thing and says something, I think, about the way in which Widodo has been able to co-opt large numbers of people to try and neutralise to the extent you can those more radical elements. In terms of Pak Prabowo, great strategic thinker, immensely charming and has a degree of charisma, but it also shows how transactional he's come in as defence minister. He wanted to be in, and there are two other members of his political party who've been brought into the cabinet as well in order to, number one, look after the interests of that political party for the next few years, but to position themselves for election in 2024, and where Prabowo himself may make another run for the presidency. So again, it's this little bit about politics being pretty elite, captured by the elite, and very transactional. So let's see what comes out of all of that. Let's turn now to Indonesian foreign policy, but I want to start with a question that really links domestic and foreign policy, and that's the question of of Islam. One contrast I've noticed is the difference between the country's support of Palestine, and I'm thinking in particular of how Jakarta would have reacted had Australia chosen to move our embassy to Jerusalem, versus its stance on the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Now, this is not a question about China. Don't yeah, worry, we're, yeah. we're coming to that. <laughs> but I'm wondering how how we should think about the extent to which Islam and the politics of Islam inside Indonesia does shape Indonesian foreign policy. Yeah, look, good question, of course. They're all, you know, everything you've asked so far is a pretty good question. It's not decisive. It is not a decisive element in how Indonesia operationalizes its worldview and how they can secure Indonesian interests. But it has become a more important element, and it's always been there, but a more important element as the domestic political calculus has changed. So you've got to appeal to people and get them to vote for you. Even if it's not a liberal democracy in our terms, it has tremendous turnout. 84% of people turned out to vote in the last elections. And if there was fraud, it was so marginal that all independent observers said that. So, you know, you've got a pretty powerful, largest election in human history held on any one day, in fact, half a day at the time. So that's a pretty good statement, powerful thing. So Islam is important in the calculus, but it's not decisive on foreign policy. The issues that they sort of selectively focus on a couple of key ones, I think. It's important you mentioned the Uyghurs because... Indonesia really has made basically no comment on the Uyghur situation. They certainly pay attention to it and have had, you know, people go in and have a look around and all that kind of thing. But there's no really strong articulated public policy on the Uyghurs and there's no great groundswell among the organisations that you might expect to be most concerned to try and get the government to do that. It's interesting, but... It's clearly because of their assessment about China, China's role in the region, and wanting to navigate, you know, the China relationship. They're very big on Palestine and always have been. Not many people in Australia sort of know when they declared independence in August 1945, in the top three or four entities in the world that came out immediately and declared support, the nascent Palestinians groups came out and declared support for Indonesian independence and against colonialism. And this has really stuck with Indonesia over the years. They feel a commitment in terms of their own constitution, which in the first couple of articles declares itself against colonialism and in favour of self-determination and independence for peoples. So it really is that kind of connection. And they have always been among the most vociferous of countries supporting a Palestinian state. So that is always a very special issue for Indonesians. And we need to bear that in mind, just to be aware of the fact that that is the case. The Rohingya, President Widodo has visited the Rohingya camp, the major camps in Bangladesh, prior to his election campaigning and everything else, and what have you, to show support because there was a domestic constituency concern, not huge, concerned about Rohingya. 
and also because there was a concern that you know you might radicalize the Rohingya population if you didn't do something to help, and that could create not only problems with boat people and, and outflows of people, but also potentially even for terrorism. But it was a fairly you know self-selecting or fairly selected issue. Afghanistan peace process. They have actually, through former Vice President Kala and others, and Foreign Minister Retno, been doing quite a lot of work in the last couple of years. I wouldn't overstate it, but significant enough work to help get the Muslim groups and Islamic groups within Afghanistan more engaged in the peace process and how you can actually create a new state which includes a significant role for Islam in one way or another. So they've chosen those kind of issues. They do within the OIC, you know, the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation, sometimes think that it's all dominated too much by the Middle East and Middle East issues. They want more recognition of their own tolerant brand of Islam. And from our point of view, number one, it's true, and they should have more recognition for that. And number two, it's a good thing good thing for Indonesia and a good thing for the region and us and the world. So not decisive, but it's there. Let's think about China then. In the last presidential campaign, Jokowi was criticised for being soft on China. So what are the domestic politics of the China relationship inside Indonesia? Is it a partisan issue? And of course, given that China is such a sensitive topic for Australia, does Indonesia's experience offer any lessons for us? Look, it's, it's not actually a partisan issue because, you know, there's pretty widespread agreement that, you know, China can be a significant, you know, country to benefit Indonesia economically and everything else. That's just accepted among the people governing and running the country broadly with the political systems. Secondly, I guess... Yeah, and, and there's recognition of the fact that China is China and the regional calculus has changed. So China is there. It's just a question of an assessment about what that means for Indonesia and then you know, wrap it into policy. It's not a partisan issue all that much, except that every now and again, you know, given a bit of a history of popular animus at times over Indonesian history about the Chinese, but there are occasionally irritants that come to the surface that worry people and cause you know, the administration and so on to have to try and make some public comment to try and you know, control or manage particular issues. Going to, in particular, Chinese workers associated with some of the Belt and Road projects that have been talked about, but not only in existing infrastructure and various investments being made, there's a lot of conspiracy stuff out there in social media, and there was during the last election, but it wasn't a partisan issue, but it, it, it was raised for everybody that, that there were the hundreds of thousands of Chinese workers had been brought into Indonesia. And they were saying there's 200,000, 300,000. The real figure, by the way, is about 20,000 and over a period of time. So that did bubble up. And the government had to lock it down and try and put, you know, some information in the public domain because they didn't want it to get out of control because they didn't want it actually to prejudice the ability for a Chinese investment to go ahead, particularly in other parts of the archipelago outside Java. So those sort of things perk up every now and again. But if you take, say, the last bilateral, big bilateral kind of issue, and they don't happen all that much between Indonesia and China, it was about sovereignty and it was the quite aggressive intrusion early last year of a lot of Chinese fishing boats into the Natunas area, south of the South China Sea, which is the EEZ of Indonesia. And, you know, they were quite, you know, there's a problem with other fisher people as well, but this was big. And there was a very strong reaction and deployment of a couple of military vessels. And Foreign Minister Masudi made some very strong comments at the time. And then the comments were mediated fairly quickly after the message was conveyed you know, to Beijing, look, this is a problem. You really need to fix this and not allow this to happen again. But that became quite a prominent issue because it touched on nationalism, sovereignty, preservation of the unity, integrity, territorially of the archipelago. And that's always a big issue. So if there's ever any interface in that area, that could become a problem. Lessons 
for us, look, there's a big difference in many ways. I mean, I think one of the key things, of course, is that China itself clearly assesses Indonesia is important to it regionally because it's the dominant economy and everything else and, you know, has big influence within ASEAN and it's such a large country. So it doesn't want to create problems with Indonesia. So the incentivization in Beijing about a good relationship with Indonesia is on a very different playing field than it is with us for reasons which are pretty self-evident. I think that's that's kind of one factor, you know, going to this question about whether there are any lessons for us. Look, I think the differences are just too great. So not really in terms of lessons. Um, the Indonesians, it's really the other way around. The Indonesians are watching us to see how we handle the situation and relations with China. And I think for a few reasons. First of all is they actually genuinely do value the partnership with us. And it's a strategic choice that they've made to work with a more resilient Australia, number one. That's one thing. So they don't want us you know, to cease to be potentially a strong partner in terms of, you know, resilient partnership, all that kind of stuff. I think they're also interested to see what are the boundaries that China has set in relations with Australia in terms of behaviour so that they, you know, can think through their own their own positioning and they're not strictly comparable, you know, things that people are going to have to look at, but they're interested to see what is Chinese behaviour and what are the boundaries in which, you know, the region itself more generally might need to pay attention. So I think that they're the sort of differences that you've got. I mean, China's working really hard with Indonesia. There's the vaccine diplomacy. There's very early, first country to come in and give support to masks and oxygen facilities and all the rest of it at the very early stages of COVID. And then, of course, the vaccine. It'll be very interesting to see because Indonesia mainly relies on Sinovac low level of efficacy, what the longer term sense of that is going to be in impacting on China's brand for dependability, because it's clearly not proving, you know, with Indonesia now the epicentre of COVID, huge community transmission, it's not proving as effective as you need it to be. And others are coming in, us, you know, we have big vaccination assistance programs, we need to do more in my assessment, but I'm sure that will continue. The US is giving more help and others, the Japanese, of course. So it's, it's, it's leveling out, you know, who can be relied on. But in the early stages, China had the first responder advantage for a long time. And the rest of us were a bit too slow to react, I have to say. It was fascinating when you answered that question, when you introduced the Natuna issue, you prefaced it by saying bilateral issues don't come up very much. Is that trajectory likely to hold or are there more irritants on the horizon in the bilateral relationship between Indonesia and China, or I guess even the trajectory of the region more broadly, or can they sort of, can both sides with enough effort sort of maintain that kind of status quo? Yeah, look, as you know, it's always difficult to predict the future. What's the saying? Prediction is very difficult, especially if you try to predict the future, something like that, which is clearly true. But look, anything that is seen to infringe on Indonesian sovereignty will be an issue. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. So that's the key thing. There is the possibility that this question of Chinese workers and any conditions which are imposed on some of the BRI investments and so on, if they could create a problem, and often that will be a localised situation, workers feeling they're being denied the opportunities and so on. But I think today, I think the Chinese are fairly sensitive to that. And we'll just have to see how that plays out. But that that could happen. And look, the unions in Indonesia are very powerful, very influential. And we saw this recently with President Widodo's major, major legislation to reform the economy, the omnibus bill on job creation, to deregulate and create new conditions for investment. And labour market reform, which is so badly needed, he went so far and then had to throw out a good deal of what he wanted to do on labour market reform because of the reaction of the unions and their influence on the members of parliament. So I just mentioned that. 
Look, and the other thing is China really is investing a lot there. Certainly, Sea Indonesia is important because of its strategic role within ASEAN and the region. It also, of course, is the fulcrum right across all those maritime sea lanes, which are so important to China. And it's also great, potentially, down the track, a great source of technology and markets. It's not just BRI, but also in trade, and particularly with the shifts that are now taking place in trade. So China itself is investing so much that I think they're going to make it easier to try and navigate through if they can. So let's bring the US in here then. What does Indonesia want from the US in the context of the region? And how would you say they're rating the Biden administration's performance so far? Yeah, look, basically, and and I'll try and be a a bit briefer on this is because I've said, you know, some of this in my earlier comments. Basically, Indonesia wants a new strategic equilibrium in the region. And they want to hedge against risk as part of all of that. And of course, if we're talking about strategic equilibrium, we're certainly talking about it between the major, the two majors, the US, China, but it's broader than that, by the way. It involves us, it involves Japan, it involves Korea, it involves India. So it's a broader picture of strategic equilibrium, but they want the United States, obviously, that not want, they know the United States really has to be a part of that and an important and active part for there to be equilibrium. So that's what they want. They want a reversal of, you know, President Trump's abrogation of the US role and unpredictability and all the rest of it. I think their initial sense is that President Biden is doing the right thing. They've got more confidence in the fact that he's clearly focused on the Indo-Pacific as part of the broader strategic remit of the United States. And they want to see where that's going, but they think it's a good thing as part of you know how you attain equilibrium. They are worried about what the US means by strategic competition. Uh, you know, they hope this won't become too angular, but also they don't want it to get into the state where you're gonna to have to declare yourself in any way with some sort of binary, you know, line. I think they're worried that, you know, the Americans might just provoke the Chinese into a little bit too much, into a further response, which is sharp and angular itself, and then ups the ante for everybody else in the region. Obviously, they're keeping a close eye on that. Look, I think they're a little concerned, for example, as well about that that strategic competition, what the implications are going to be economically for access to technology, supply chains, that kind of thing. I I read a speech by the Singaporean Prime Minister yesterday, in fact, sent to me by a friend in Singapore, Lee Sien Lung, spoke to uh, the Aspen Security Forum a couple of days ago, and particularly focused on the risk of bifurcation of technology and supply chains. So there's a bit of a focus on that. And it's broader than just Indonesia, but they're alert to that as well. And they want US investment, economic investment, part of the equilibrium, you know. So that concludes part one of our conversation with Gary Quinlan. Stay tuned for part two, where a major focus will be the Australia-Indonesia bilateral relationship. As always, thanks to Mitchell McIntosh for his help with research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again soon.